Lord, be with us by the power of your Holy Spirit. For your Spirit is the true teacher. Anoint us, uh, not only one who speaks, but those who hear, that Jesus Christ might be lifted up in all of his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 26, a wonderful story of the heart of the gospel is what this is. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, when therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself, and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one with whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You shall worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we We know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. As I said, this is a wonderful story of the gospel whereby God seeks out his sheep until he finds them. That's what this is all about. 
The story of Jesus' encounter with this woman at the well is a great example of the parable of the lost sheep recorded in Luke chapter 15, 1 through 7. Now, I don't think I'm going to steal, steal any of Jess's thunder by just making a comment about it. <laughs> turn, turn to Luke 15. And look at verses 1 through 7. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now you keep this parable in mind as we look at this wonderful encounter of Jesus with this woman who is in great need of the gospel, as we're going to see. We got to keep in mind what 1 John 4, 10 says, where it says, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now we know from chapter four here that Jesus's popularity was growing. He was doing amazing things. And of course, people were being drawn to it. He must increase, John must decrease, his disciples were doing all the baptizing, not Jesus. And it says he departed from Judea to go to Galilee. And one might ask, why, why did he leave Judea and go to Galilee? Well, for one thing is that there was a lot of animosity growing with the uh, religious leaders. As you know, uh, John the Baptist will eventually, it'll become so much that they'll come out and arrest him. And Jesus is growing in even more popularity than John ever was. And it's interesting in the scripture where Jesus says he avoided certain situations where people were trying to get him and kill him, like when he was uh, at the synagogue of, of Nazareth and he read from the scroll of Isaiah and says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they go, what? and they were ready to throw him off the cliff, and he just escapes through. Several times Jesus says, my hour is not yet come. His hour is not yet come. So to prevent any kind of, of, not that, of course God is sovereign, but Jesus wants to leave and go to an area uh, where there's, He's not all that well-known. He had been there. He had performed a miracle at Cana of Galilee, but he has returned to, to Galilee. Now it says here, he takes the most direct route from Judea to, to Samaria. And it says in verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, just for a, a quick geography lesson, you get, Watch, you got, you got Judea here. You got the Sea of Galilee right here. And here you got Samaria. And above Samaria is Galilee. Now, I've mentioned in the past, a real dedicated Jew would go around 
out into the wilderness around the Sea of Galilee to Galilee, I mean from Judea to Galilee, so he would not have to defile himself by going through the land of the Samaritans. But it says here, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, it may have been a a more direct route, but I think there's more to this when it says he, he had to go. You see, the vital part of this story is that of God's love and of Jesus seeking out sinners wherever they are. And he is going to Samaria for a purpose. That's why he had to go there because he's going to look for one of his from one for one of his lost sheep. Now we know that there's this uh, going through Samaria. The Jews and the Samaritans they didn't did not get along well at all. I'll mention more of that in a minute. For one thing, the Samaritans um, were half breeds or half Jews, half Gentiles. When the the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. They carried off the 10 tribes uh, into Assyria and dispersed them. And over a period of time, there was an intermarrying of these Jews with the Assyrians, Gentiles, and they were, they were a mixed bag. You know, so they were technically half-breeds. And so they were looked down upon. But that's not the only reason they were looked down upon. We'll bring that out in a moment. So there was a, there was a great enmity between uh, the Jews and the Samaritans. And for one, we know in Luke chapter 9, verse 53, when Jesus was leaving from Galilee where he performed the wedding, uh, at, he was a, a guest at the wedding of Galilee and he changed the water into wine says he went to Jerusalem and he sent his disciples ahead to, to, to find a place for them to stay in Samaria. And it says those in the city would not give him, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't give him a place to, to, to sleep or to rest. And you remember that's why the two brothers, John and James, who were called the sons of thunder, appropriately said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to take care of this? For that, basically for that insult that they've given to you? See, they knew that he was a Jew and they didn't even want to show hospitality to Jesus and his disciples. So when the Jews were in um, prosperity, the Samaritans, uh, they did claim a kindred to them because there was a a certain physical kindred to them. We read in Ezra and uh, chapter four, verse two, that when the Jews were in distress, uh, the Medes and the Persians, um, this was, the, let me just back up. It was after the captivity and they were sent back they were given permission to go back after the 70 years and rebuild the, the temple. And during that period of time, the Samaritans wanted to help them, but the Jews would not let them help. They didn't want their help. That was a great insult to, to the Samaritans. And when the Jews found themselves in distress, guess who the Samaritans were siding with? All those that wanted to come in and stop the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. So there was a great animosity between the two. Again, as we've said, concerning the Samaritans, Jesus says, must go through Samaria. So he comes to Jacob's well and he sits down and he's, the scripture says he's wearied and it's about the sixth hour. The Jews normally figured the day from sunrise to sunset. So the sixth hour would be around noon, the, one of the hottest parts of the day. And it says that Jesus was weary and he wanted some water. And mind you, the disciples, we're going to find out, they had left Jesus there by the well to go into the city to get some food. So Jesus is by himself. And we're told there that's when a woman, a Samaritan woman, comes 
to the well. And um, Jesus says to her, well, give me a drink. Now, one of the things about Jacob's well, and it still exists to this day, and you want to know how deep that well is, in 1935, they measured the well to be 135 feet. That was a deep well. And it was supplied by springs of water that would feed it. So it was a deep well. The water would be very cool. It would be refreshing. And we see that uh, here comes this, this woman, we're told. Verse uh, 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now, it was a custom of, of women. Usually at that time of the day, women would come out and we know from the text that it was some journey to go and get the water. And she had come to draw water. And she finds him sitting there, and he speaks to her and says, can you give me a drink? And we, we see, again, you've got to understand how this relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews were. There was a, as I said, there was a extreme uh, malicious views against the Samaritans. Let me tell you how the Jews viewed them. They looked upon them as having no part in the resurrection, excommunicated. Uh, they viewed them as being cursed by the sacred names of God and the writing of the tables. And no Israelite was to eat anything that is belonging to a Samaritan. For it would be, they considered eating something that Samaritans gave you would be like eating swine flesh, which was forbidden by the Jews. That's how the Jews viewed the Samaritans. And as I said, that, that hostility goes all the way back when uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were building the wall around Jerusalem and there was, um, they wouldn't allow the Samaritans to help. Then the Samaritans were revengeful and would not help uh, the, the Jews when they were being uh, threatened. So consequently, if you're not going to let us help you rebuild the temple, you know what we're going to do? We're going to set up our own temple on Mount Gerizim. That's what we're going to do. And that's what they did. And they sort of worshiped Jehovah. I said sort of because there was a lot of uh, oddities to their worship at Mount Gerizim. Now, they had a respect, we're going to see, for the law of Moses. But there was a lot of strange things in what uh, they believed. Now, it says here, Look at the response of the Samaritan woman when Jesus says, give me a drink. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So what we see here, well, first of all, you might ask the question, how did she know that Jesus was a Jew? We're not told explicitly, but it could have been what he was wearing and it could be that his dialect was different. Just like if you're up north and they, and they come down and hear us talk, they says, I guess we know where you're from. <laughs> so we don't know, but something gave it away to the Samaritan woman that Jesus was a Jew. And... This woman is amazed that he should ask from her this kindness of giving him a drink of water. For it was the pride of the Jews that they would endure hardship rather than to be beholding to a Samaritan. So that really surprised this woman that this Jew would ask her for a drink of water. And also, remember, they weren't to have anything. The Jews would not receive anything uh, that the Samaritans had, food, whatever it may be. So this woman realizes when Jesus asked her for a drink of water, 
he would have to use her picture that she draws out from the well. And that further astonishes her. Not only you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, and you're asking me to do this? She's probably even amazed that he would even talk to her. And you see here, I think one of the things that we can learn so far from this is the glory of the gospel is that it transcends all barriers. There is never to be such pride and contempt for those who are in the body of Christ. You know what the, what the glory of the gospel is? It breaks down every single barrier, racial, it doesn't matter what, Jew or Gentile. That's why the scripture says, there's neither in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male or female. For we all are one in Christ Jesus. And one of the great principles of the New Testament is that breaking down of that wall separation between Jew and Gentile. Now in verse 10, Jesus begins to immediately direct her towards some divine things. Look what it says here. It says, Jesus answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now what Jesus is beginning to do He's beginning to rescue this woman from the chains of her sin is what he's beginning to do. And he's in complete control of this conversation. Jesus, uh, he, well, one, when she says, you Jews, you know, have nothing to do with us, he really doesn't even deal with that question right at all. He just ignores it. And he plainly states to her, if you really knew God's gift and who it was that was talking to you, you'd ask for living water. Well, that's got to raise her curiosity about this living water, and it does. Now, what does Jesus mean by this living water as distinguished from the water drawn from Jacob's well? Well, the living water, water is surely the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit of God that goes out and regenerates deadened souls, making them a new creation. Because you said, if you knew the gift of God, remember, do we call it, we've already looked at Nicodemus. Jesus says, you got to be born again, Nicodemus, right? Can we cause ourselves to be born again? No. The act of regeneration is an act of God's free gift to take someone out of darkness into light. Those who were in bondage to sin and to Satan and to, to deliver them. That's what's involved. Now first let's understand that Jesus says this living water is a gift from God. And we cannot, as I said, we can't regenerate ourselves. So this living water that he speaks of is a, that living water is a gift from God. It's not earned, it's his gift. Second, Jesus says, if you would readily ask for this water, if you knew who it is who spoke to you, then you would, uh, you would want this water. Now, in other words, she doesn't understand yet that the Messiah is speaking to her. But this idea of Old Testament blessings and the Messiah, they, uh, they often are given in the imagery of water and living water. I want us to take a look at, at three texts in the book of Isaiah. The first one is taken from Isaiah chapter 12, Verse 1 through 3. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, 
For although thou wast angry with me, thy anger is turned away, and thou didst comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. See that imagery? Very similar to what we see in John and Jesus talking to this woman. Turn over to Isaiah 44. Look at verses 1 through 5. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you? Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by the streams. This one will say, I am of the Lord. And this one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand belonging to the Lord and will name Israel's name with honor. And then finally turn to Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3. It might be a more common thing that you've read before. Isaiah 55, beginning at verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies of David. So, coming back to John, the only reason I wanted to bring that out to you was the fact that Jesus says, if you knew who I was talking about, saying to you, you would want what, I'm, what God's willing to offer you. And so this idea of the refreshment of living water and, and God's blessing his people uh, abundantly is an Old Testament reality. Now, these graces of the Spirit, his comforts, they satisfy the soul. And that he, he knows its own nature and necessity. Jesus Christ can and he does give his Holy Spirit to all those who seek him. So in, in verses in John 4, so in verses 11 and 12, she said to him, Sir, you've got nothing to draw with. This well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And then she says, You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his daughter and his uh, cattle? So this, Mer this Samaritan woman is virtually thoroughly perplexed now. She's still not getting it. Where do you get this living water? This well is deep. That springs, how are you going to get that? You don't have a bucket. I'm the one that has that. How are you going to get it? And then you're not greater than Jacob, are you? What she's doing now is beginning to ponder the idea, this person that she's talking to is greater than what she might think at the outset. In other words, the good shepherd is making her receptive to the gospel is what he's doing. And in verses 13 and 14, in response to her question, Jesus says, he answers her indirectly, and he says, all who drink of this well, they're going to be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I'm offering you, 
He says, you'll never be, you'll never be thirsty. And you, it will be a well of water so great, it will spring up to eternal life. So she's thinking, a well of water that will spring up to eternal life? A water that never needs replenishing? Now, her curiosity is really at a heightened level now by what Jesus is saying to her. But she still doesn't understand the spiritual nature of this gift of God that Jesus was referring to. And she doesn't understand the character of the one who is speaking to her. Because Jesus said, if you really knew who I was, you would take that living water. Now in verse 15, she now wants this water. Why? Because she says, if I have this water, I won't have to make this long journey. <laughs> She's still not making the connection spiritually what Jesus is offering. He says, at least I won't have to come all this journey if, you can, if I can get this water. Now, this is all about to change now in the life of this woman. And the good shepherd who is seeking the lost sheep is going to become very pointed and he will hit home with what we see in verses 17 and 18. Take a look. Well, verse, first of all, Jesus said, verse 16, go call your husband and come here. Now you may think, first of all, let's stop. What a question to ask. Where in this whole dialogue did this come from? There's been no discussion about this. So Jesus out of nowhere says, well, go call your husband to come here. What does she say in verses 17 and 18? The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you're now with is not your husband, for you have said truly. Now, yo, now you can imagine what's going on in the mind of this Samaritan woman. Whoa, I mean, how does this man know this about me? I mean, he's a stranger. How would he know that I don't have a husband? How does he know that I've had five husbands? And how does he know that I, the one I'm living with is not my husband? How would he know that? Well, remember, remember how Jesus impressed Nathaniel? Remember how he impressed him? He comes to Nathanael and says, Behold, an Israelite indeed. For I saw you under the fig tree, Nathanael. Now you remember, by Jesus simply saying, I saw you under the fig tree, and making the comment that you are an Israelite indeed, all of a sudden, Nathaniel says, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. From making that statement? Well, of course. How did Jesus know he was under a fig tree? No one was around. And how did Jesus know what he was thinking and meditating upon unless Jesus is the omniscient God? And that, and he... He understands and makes that connection. He says, you are the son of God. And he begins to follow Jesus. And this hit home with this woman, the fact that he knew all of this about her. Because in verse 19, the woman says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Because only, now why would you do that? Because only a prophet would have such intimate knowledge about her life. Only a prophet would know that, and she recognizes that. 
Just like, like I said, Nathaniel understood who Jesus was. Just like Nicodemus came to Jesus, remember, and says, we know you must be a prophet from God because nobody would be able to do the signs that you do unless you were a prophet of God. So you at least must be a prophet. Nathaniel believes he's the son of God. We're not told that Nicodemus believed that, but I believe later on he was, became a follower of Jesus. And this woman we're going to see at least recognizes that he's a prophet and it's, it's, it will take root in her. Now, what he had said concerning his grace and eternal life, he found, that found a great impression upon her. Now, the thing about it is, she was not yet convinced of her sin. Jesus points out about it, you've had five husbands, and who you're living with is not even your husband. Now, let's, let's mention this. And this is a remedy in dealing with lost souls. A person needs to come to the point of understanding that they are a sinner so that the gospel, so that the, the solution can be brought to bear to their problem, which is sin. And they've got to come to that point. This is why I believe that we need to stress using the law of God in evangelism. Just as 1 John 3, 4 says, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. And in Romans 3, 19 and 20, he says, and whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world become accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then, of course, Galatians 3, 10 says, all those who are the works of the law are under a curse. Cursed are all those who do not abide by all the things written in the law to perform them. And how many sins does it take to condemn us? James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point has become guilty of all. In dealing with people, with the gospel, they've got to come to a point of understanding I'm a sinner. And Jesus is doing that very thing for this Samaritan woman, pointing out something about her life that's quite remarkable. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 27 and 28, where he says, come unto me, all you that are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. So what Jesus is seeking to do is drawing attention to her sin. That's why he raised the question. Now, because she acknowledged that Jesus was a prophet, she begins to talk about this idea of worship. And he says, this leads her to ask about where are we to worship? She says, uh, our fathers worshiped uh, Jehovah on this mountain it was probably nearby. She says, our fathers worship on this mountain, Gerizim. And you Jews say, and here's what she says, where you men ought to worship is Jerusalem. That word ought is significant. She understands that the Jews did not recognize the validity of that Samaritan place of worship and at least in this case, she was right about that. Now, Jesus makes it very clear that salvation is of the Jews. Because uh, he says to him, um, verse 21 and following, Woman, 
Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, like Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We, meaning the Jews, we worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, is it that salvation is from the Jews? Well, Jess brought it out, I believe, this morning, where he says, to who was given the oracles of God? To the Jews. It wasn't given to the Gentiles. It wasn't given to the, uh, to the Samaritans. And it was to the Jews that were given the oracles of God, the temple service and the like. They were a special people. And there was a time when where you worshiped was very important. Because in the old covenant, Jerusalem was the center of worship in Israel. And it was a big deal when the, uh, there was a transition from the Mosaic covenant to the Davidic covenant. And the main difference there is there was a permanent dwelling place now in a temple as opposed to a movable tent going around the desert. And God would dwell there. Remember when, when uh, Solomon dedicated the temple? Remember there was a great, the Shekinah cloud that used to lead Israel came and filled the temple in such a way that the priests couldn't do their duties, indicating that God was coming and was present. There was a time that Jerusalem and Mount Moriah, where the temple was, was the holiest place on the face of the earth. But that time, Jesus says, was gone. Because he says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain or in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. The new covenant in Christ changes everything. Now, what Jesus is doing, he's showing the, in one sense, now the irrelevance of where one worships the true God. Jesus says that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And the physical place isn't all that important. You know, we by nature, we talk about this facility, we're going to go to we're going to go to church, and we mean this facility. But I know you're all educated enough to know biblically that that this building is not the church. We are the church. We are the living temple. We just happen to be meeting in this facility. It could be just as meaningful if we were got to this field over here. It didn't used to be that way at one point in biblical history, but it is now, Jesus says. It doesn't matter where you worship. Where It doesn't matter where as long as you worship in spirit and in truth. So this worshiping in the spirit, what is that? Well, it's an emphasis upon the internalization of our worship. We worship from the heart. You know, Scripture says in, in Romans 10, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. We worship God from the heart and we are governed by the word of God which is truth. Now, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, he's praying to the Father, and he says, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. So when Jesus is telling this woman, there's going to come a time that that mountain or Jerusalem doesn't mean anything. What matters is, it's in the spirit, in your heart, and it's the truth. And where do we find that truth? The word of God. That is what matters, Jesus says. 
So genuine believers worship God in spirit, from the heart, and in truth. These are the people that God is seeking as his worshipers. And the reason he says, now this this necessity of spiritual worship, where is it rooted? Well, it's rooted in the fact what Jesus said. Look at verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's why it's from the heart and why we, we worship in the truth, because God doesn't have a body. The Father doesn't have a body. He is a spirit. That's one of the early catechism questions about the nature of God. Now understand this, the Father may not have a body, but Jesus does, doesn't he? Because he's the God-man. He is the eternal Son of God, incarnate, assuming human flesh in order to be the Redeemer of God's people. Now in verse 25, the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. You know, this brings out again, if you recall when Jesus was gathering his disciples, they were making similar comments. Like, like Peter and Andrew, they were fishermen, but they knew something about the Old Testament. They were not ignorant of the Old Testament. And they knew about this prophet that Moses talked about that was coming. So let's look at that prophet that Jesus' disciples knew and this prophet that this Samaritan woman obviously knew something about because they had a great respect for the law of Moses, the Samaritans. So turn to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Now Moses was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. But Moses said, there is one who's coming like me, and you'd better listen to this one. Now, this Samaritan woman, if you turn back to John 4, this Samaritan woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. They they understood this, and that when he comes, then he will declare all things to us. He will reveal spiritual things, God things to us. We know that. So Jesus has been developing in this conversation with her, talking about this living water, that if you drink of this living water that I get, that I'm going to offer you, you'll never have to thirst again, and it springs up to eternal life. And Jesus tells her something about her life that no one would know except a prophet. And so she said, Jesus said to her, when she said, this Messiah will declare all things to you, Jesus said, now imagine how this hit home. I who speak to you am he. Whoa. We're going to see next week as we get into this, she's going to go into the town and tell everybody what this man had told her And she's going to say, he's not the Messiah, is he? You see what Jesus has done? He has, he had to go through Samaria in order to sit at a well knowing that a particular woman would come by and he wouldn't engage in that. 
You know, this is the, the great, and remember it says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask for that living water. Jesus will go out of his way as the parable of the lost sheep. He will leave the 99 and he will go and hunt until he finds the straying sheep. He went through Samaria deliberately, sat at a well deliberately, knowing, knowing this woman would come by how did he know that? Because he's God. That's why. And you know, when God brings us to himself, as I've mentioned to you, I can understand this is meaningful to me, how Jesus sought out an unbelieving 18-year-old who left Tennessee to go 2,500 miles away in Utah. And that's where Jesus says, you know, because I've always said it made no sense for me to do what I did. Because I told you I had a, tennis, a full tennis scholarship. I gave it up. That made no sense. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to send you out 2,500 miles away because that is where I'm going to find you. And he did. See, the glory of the good shepherd, the glory of the providence of God, the glory of the extent that God will go to to accomplish his divine purpose. It is amazing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much that you will go to whatever effort to find us and change our heart and make us one of your own. And you've done that in all of our hearts in some capacity. And we give praise and glory to you that our good shepherd loves us this much. We magnify the name of Jesus. And we pray in his great name. Amen.